Bible refers to Jesus as the author and finisher of faith. And so we're going to stay with Yaakov in this letter dealing with faith and, and seek to have a little more finishing work done on our faith. If you begin in verse 7 of chapter 5, Yaakov writes, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And recognizing Yaakov's dispensational framework at the close of this letter, everything that he's teaching here is last day's teaching. Truly, you could say that about the entire letter, how to live life in the last days. I think if I was going to give a new title to this teaching series, that's what I'd call it. Living life in the last days. But we began looking on Sunday at prayer and praise in the last days. But what I want to do tonight is go back. Further than 2,000 years ago, I want to go back with Yaakov 900 years before his day, 2,900 years before ours, to follow this one example he gives for prayer and praise in the last days. And the example he gives is from prayer and praise in the former days, the days of Elijah. Verse 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, not that this matters, but let me just tell you what happened with me here. I was studying through this, verse 13 through 18. I'm reading about prayer. I'm thinking about prayer. I'm thinking at first, well, we'll just kind of scoot through this on Wednesday and be done. But then there was so much more here, I realized, nope, this is what we got to talk about Sunday. So we did. And as I prepared for Sunday, I realized there's even more here that we need the next Sunday to finish. But then I thought, well, when I finish that, then what will I talk about on Wednesday night in between? Elijah. Elijah. He gives us one example. When you come to an Old Testament, Older Testament, Hebrew Scriptures example in the New Testament, there is great value in stopping and going back and considering that example. That's what we're going to do tonight. Consider the exploits of Elijah that were so powerful and so spectacular. (laughs) One fiery chariot to go, please. I mean, amazing life that was lived, incredible story, perhaps the most popular, with the exception of Moses, the most popular uh, figure among the Jewish people in their heritage, this remarkable prophet. And yet his entire story covers just six chapters. And yet he's, he's mentioned there in First and Second Kings, he's named throughout the entire Bible only 95 times. They might say, wow, 95 times. Seems like a lot. Well, not compared to Moses, who was named 787 times. But this this prophet, who doesn't cover a whole lot of time, as you're going to see, is still looked for by Jews today as the one whose coming is going to precede the Messiah. And he's looked for by thinking, studied Christians today as the one whose coming is going to precede Messiah and His kingdom. 
Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse and the Hebrew scriptures end. With that prophecy from Malachi, 400 years go by and suddenly a man by the name of Zacharias is praying in the temple and the angel Gabriel appears to him and speaks to him and relates Malachi's prophecy of 400 years before, repeats this prophecy that had been spoken, the last one, and then quiet. And now the prophecy is brought back up to Zacharias and Gabriel is saying this is about to be fulfilled, well, partially fulfilled in your son John. And you're to name him John, you know, J the B, John the Baptist. But, but, Elijah himself must first come before the prophecy is completely fulfilled. How does that all work? Well, if you move forward from John the Baptist and his birth and the angel Gabriel speaking to Zacharias, move forward oh, about 30 years or so, give or take, depending on the calendar you look at. And you move forward those 30 years and there's Peter and James and John and Yeshua coming down the mountain. And they had just had a mountaintop experience, seeing Jesus transfigured before them in all of His glory, talking with Moses and Elijah. And His disciples get to thinking. And in Matthew chapter 17, verse 10, His disciples asked Him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And He answered and He said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Future tense. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Well, Jesus, how can Elijah be coming and have already come? How is that possible? And clearly, we understand that he was talking about John the Baptist as a picture, as a partial fulfillment of the coming of of an Elijah character, an Elijah figure, before the coming of the Son of Man. But, the prophecy says, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So Elijah's going to come again. Elijah himself, not in the person of John the Baptist, But Elijah will come. He must yet come. You Bible students know this. In the book of Revelation, John wrote about two witnesses who will prophesy for 1260 days. Note this, that's three and a half years. In Jerusalem, they will be speaking prophecy about what's going on in those days of tribulation. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, and by the way, I'm convinced that all news stations are going to be trained on them. You're probably going to have a running TV channel that is just on the prophets, and what are they saying today? Through that entire three and a half year period. And Revelation 11, verse 3 says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of the mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. It's going to be some interesting times. 
And the weight of the biblical evidence, and we can have this conversation, in fact we will this fall, Lord willing. But we can have the conversation that the weight of the biblical evidence identifies these two witnesses as Moses and Elijah. I think it's clear, it becomes very obvious when you look across the New Testament Scriptures, that these are the two witnesses. And I'm not going to defend it tonight. Again, I will at another time if we need to. But Elijah, Elijah is coming. But Elijah also already came. And Yaakov chooses Elijah to be the example of prayer in the last days by the way of his prayer in the former days. So that's what we're going to spend the rest of our night on tonight. So keep your finger. You don't even have to keep your finger. We may go back to James 5. But for now, let's go to 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17, and we're going to walk through the life of Elijah. Beginning in verse 1. 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite... I had some trouble with some Tishbites in our house and we got some insecticide and took care of that. (laughs) Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Yaakov tells us it was exactly three and a half years. Note that. The exact length of time of the two witnesses prophesying 1260 days 42 months three and a half years same thing and so here he comes out of nowhere there will be no rain elijah says and there wasn't for three and a half years now elijah the tishbite people try to figure out what does that mean well it's either he was from tishbe in gilead maybe it was a township in gilead that's uncertain Or perhaps what they're really just saying is Elijah Elijah the the settler was of the settlers of Gilead. Because Tishbite comes from Toshab in the Hebrew, which means settler, or stranger, or sojourner. And that's Elijah. Elijah the settler. Elijah the sojourner. Elijah the stranger. And I think that fits because this stranger, prior to verse 1 of chapter 17, we've never heard of him. He just bursts onto the scene, makes this prayerful proclamation. This is the beginning of the ministry, at least biblically, the ministry we see of Elijah. And as I said, the entirety of his ministry is recounted in Scripture. Listen, it lasts less than a decade, probably six or seven years, from the beginning of 1 Kings 17 to the end where he's taken up in the fiery chariot, 2 Kings chapter 2. About six or seven years. Not a whole lot of time. Six or seven years in the entire history of the world, and yet the impact is still felt of this man's ministry. I would submit to you it's because he prayed. Now, up to this moment again, this sojourner of Gilead was a stranger. He was an unknown in Israel. But all that needs to be known about him and about his background is his name, Eliyahu, or Eliyahu, which means... Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. That's all that matters. Elijah bursts onto the scene. And if you want to jot this down, I'll give you seven things about prayer that we see in Elijah. He comes on the scene. The very first thing he does, James tells us, Yaakov tells us, is he prays. 
He prays that it would not rain. Now, we see him declaring this in verse 1 of chapter 17 to Ahab the king. He declares it, but he declares what he had prayed. So his entire ministry begins with prayer, and prayer, number one, prayer professes. Prayer professes. That is, it reveals who you are. Oh yeah, prayer professes faith, professes who you believe God to be, but prayer professes who you are as well. It exposes you. How you pray, to whom you pray, where you pray, when you pray, how much you pray, it exposes you. It reveals me. Uh, The Pharisee and the tax collector, you remember them? Jesus told the parable of these two men, does it not reveal something of their character as the Pharisee prays what a glorious, wonderful man he is and the tax collector is beating his breast saying, have mercy on me, a sinful man. The Pharisee who says, I am thankful that I am not like this publican and the publican who, by the way, if he prayed a second time would be a republican. <laughs> he, just, he just prays, Lord, forgive me. And remember, he went home justified. But you can see by their prayers, you're all still shaking your heads, that's marvelous. You can hear by their prayers something of who they are. Because prayer professes. It wasn't until Elijah earnestly prayed that it would not rain, that suddenly now he's known as a prophet of God. Before that we knew nothing, he was a stranger. But he prays and now he's a prophet. He's a man of God, something has been revealed about him. By the way, it wasn't until Jesus prayed that the two sojourners on the way to Emmaus realized it was Him. His prayer revealed Himself to them. Prayer does that. It professes who we are. And prayer in the name of Jesus, even better, it professes to whom we belong. We belong to Him. And Jesus said in Matthew 10.32, Therefore, everyone who confesses Me before men, I will also confess Him before My Father who is in heaven. Elijah is now the professed prophet of Israel. And it happened the moment he prayed. Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you will drink of the brook And I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Not the football team, but the birds. And he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. That's fantastic. Can you imagine... Praying the prayer that you know God wants you to pray, and it's an outlandish prayer. Father, bring drought. Give us a drought for three and a half years. And hearing at that time, the Lord say, I got you covered. You're going to go drink out of this brook, and I'm going to send the birds bringing your food. And every morning and every evening, here they come bringing your sack lunch. Amazing. We read stories like that, and we in our American mindset think, well, if I had that happen in my life, my faith would be huge. If I could see those things, well, it would be easy to believe. Faith has nothing to do with what you see. Faith has everything to do with who you trust. It doesn't matter if you can see something happen or not. It reminds you of the Israelites walking through the Red Sea and very quickly sinning after that. Because it's not about what you can see. It's who you trust. Well, he sends Elijah away. Now, this is a huge part of his ministry. Get this. I love this. This would be a great way to start any ministry. 
Pray, proclaim, and hide. For three and a half years, he just disappears. The only people who see him are birds and ultimately a widow and her son, which we'll get to in just a minute. Second thing, though, to note about prayer. Seriously, not only does prayer profess who we are, but prayer is a private hideaway. It's a private hideaway. It's one of the most intimate things about prayer is that no matter who you are or where you are, you can get away with Jesus instantly. You can hide away. You can have the worst day ever and get to your car and close the door and hide away with Jesus. Prayer is a private hideaway. And often, after some big event or faith happening in our lives, the Lord will say just this, Hey, come away with me. Come away and rest yourself. Elijah, I want you to go down to the brook Kirith and I'm going to take care of you there. You just chill for a while. Or the apostles gathered together with Jesus, Mark chapter 6, verse 30 and 31, and they reported to Him all that they had done and taught in this marvelous teaching and and casting out of demons and healing people tour. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. And that's prayer. Man, you, you don't have to go off on a mountain retreat. You can just close the door and immediately be in the presence of the Lord. You can come immediately out of of a hardship and be with Jesus in a private hideaway. That's prayer. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 6, When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's something beautiful about the privacy of prayer, of using it as a hideaway. And again, don't think you have to get to the church. It's interesting to me, every now and then someone will show up here. Oftentimes people who don't even attend the bridge. We've had this happen now several times. Midweek someone will knock on the door or ring the bell or or come in and just say, I saw that you're at church, I was just wondering if I could go into your sanctuary and pray. And we say, no, get at it. No, we, we say, of course. Of course you may. Yeah, go ahead. Feel, feel free. But I think about that when it happens. Are you restricted to where you can pray? Do you feel like you have to be in, in the, the building or the holy place or, or the anointed location? Or can you just drop to your knees anywhere? And again, this is one of the things that the nations and the rulers and the governments of the world cannot figure out about Christianity is that it happens wherever you are. That the church is wherever two or three are gathered in His name. That you can stop and be with Jesus instantaneously because He's already there. Prayer is a private hideaway. Come away, Jesus says. Close the door, Jesus says. Let's just be together, Jesus says. And you might say, well that sounds great, but what about prosukomai? Huh? We talked about on Sunday, the Greek word for prayer, prosukamai, is speaking aloud unto. And Pastor Rick, you made a big point about the fact that we need to speak aloud. But Jesus says, when you pray, go into your inner room where no one can hear you. What's the deal? Listen, one is attitude and the other one is practice. One is private prayer. Closing the door, praying privately is, is the attitude of prayer. That we, we never pray aloud to promote ourselves. The idea behind prosukamai, as we talked about Sunday, is not that you stand on the street corner like the Pharisee and declare your self-righteousness. No, that's not what we meant at all. 
That's, that's attitude of prayer. But in the practice of prayer, I encourage you strongly, practice vocally. If you go to your room and you close the door and you are all alone with God, speak aloud to Him. Les and I had a great conversation about this last week. Speaking aloud prayer, even when you're all by yourself, does something to your heart. You hear your own words coming out of your mouth to your father. And you know when you hear your own words, you're checking your own integrity immediately. You know whether or not you're being honest with God and yourself. And to hear your words, it encourages faith to come. It, it convicts me. It builds me up. It, it, it helps my physical man, my natural man, sense the reality of what's actually taking place. I am talking, I am conversing with, I am in the presence of God. When I pray in my mind, and I don't speak it aloud, you know what happens? I don't know about you, but what happens to me when I pray silently in my brain is I pray maybe 30 seconds, and next thing you know, I'm off somewhere else. In la-la land. I'm distracted, and I have no... And, and I, How many times have you been there where you're praying, and all of a sudden you go, Oh, Lord, wait, what were we talking about? Where were we just now? I'm sorry, I was just doing the bills in my head. <laughs> Didn't mean to go there. Pray aloud. Pray aloud to the Father conversationally with Him. That's prosukamai. Speak aloud to God. I don't care if you speak aloud to God in front of other people or not, although that increases faith too. One of the most, one of the greatest blessings I have is being in groups of people and hearing other people pray. Man, that builds me up and encourages me and feeds my faith. And when other people are praying aloud, aloud in front of me, I start to hear things from the Lord as well. And he starts to say, hey, yeah, yeah, join him in that. We were praying for Andrew in Turkey. You know the story, you know what's going on right now, a pastor in Turkey who is uh, being held on charges and either he will spend the rest of his life in a Turkish prison or they're going to set him free and he'll be able to come back to America with his family. Pray for Andrew. This is going on right now. And so we're up in staff meeting this morning and we're praying for Andrew. Jake brought him up. Told us what was going on and was praying for Andrew. And I'm sitting there hearing Jake pray and, and, and you know, faith was just getting stronger and stronger. I'm like, I've got to pray too. i got to join Jake in this and pray for Andrew. And immediately when I thought of that, I felt like we had been transported back to Jerusalem of the first century praying for Peter to get out of prison. It was just that quick and that encouraging. So speak aloud your prayers. Yeah, vocal, practical prayer, private, attitudinal prayer. Either way... Prayer professes who you are, and prayer is a private hideaway. So Elijah hid away after his great prayer, spent these days with the Lord. I imagine those were sweet days that probably wasn't just the ravens feeding Elijah, but God was feeding his faith for what was about to take place. Well, then the word of the Lord... Oh, wait, verse 7. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. What would you do in that moment? God has just fed you morning and evening by birds, you know, bringing in the food. What would you do when the brook dries up? Would you immediately start to grumble and complain? Welsh, God sends me here and now what? Now what am I going to do? No more water. Well, thanks a lot, Lord. Well, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which is Lebanon, Belongs to Sidon, you know, Tyre and Sidon that Jesus went up to, that's Lebanon. 
and stay there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So Elijah arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, remember she's Sidonian, she is not Israeli or Israelite, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Now that's not because she was a bad cook. It's because it's all she had left. This is our last meal. This is a woman who was at the end of herself and had given up all hope. Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. Why doesn't he let her make one for herself and her son first? And then he can have one. Faith. Faith. By the way, by the way, she says, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. Why would she say that to him? I mean, other than the fact that she was running out. As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. Listen. We're told back in verse 9 that God said to Elijah, Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. God had already told her. So now Elijah shows up and asks for bread, and she has confirmation of what the Lord had already told her, and she's rebuffing it. I don't hate the Lord your God as he lives, because he talked to me yesterday. I don't have any bread. I can't help you. Well, he says, make me a cake and then you can make one for your son and for yourself. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, verse 14, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day of the Lord that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah and she and he and her household, which is apparently just her little boy, ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. Listen, prayer yields provision. It always does. We're the ones that struggle with that. God doesn't struggle with the whole issue of provision. When you're out of money, when you're out of resources, when you're out of flour and oil, prayer yields provision. You know, the optimist is the one who says the glass is half full. Pessimist says the glass is half empty. The realist says the glass is. The idealist says the glass will be full. The feminist says my glass must be as full as his. (laughs) The chauvinist says my glass is stronger than hers. The anarchist, he says, break the glass. The capitalist says, sell the glass. The environmentalist says, (laughs) save the water. The physicist says, the volume of the cylinder is divided into two equal parts. One, a colorless, odorless liquid, and the other, a colorless, odorless gas. Thus, the cylinder is neither half full nor half empty. Rather, each half of the cylinder is full, one with gas, and the other one with a liquid. You know what God says? God would say the bottom of your glass is just the surface of mine. You get to the end of yourself and you are just beginning to tap into my ocean. 
of provision, my reservoir. How much better is the provision of God when we pray for it expectantly? When we assume it is going to come, when we know He has all things. Now, this is one of the toughest things for humanity. Christians, non-Christians, believers, those who are struggling, for all of us, one of the toughest things is actually believing, taking Jesus at His word. I've come back to this again and again. When Jesus said, don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things... Your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Note, what do the Gentiles do? They seek these things. They're looking to fill up the barns with provision. They're wanting to make sure they've got enough. And Jesus is saying, that's what they do. I want you to seek the kingdom. Let God fill the barn. Let God take care of the need. And every time we talk about God's provision, I know... Because a little voice in the back of my head still shouts this every now and then. Yeah, but... Well, but... That's great when everything's going well. It's easy to believe. But man, when I'm struggling... I was called by a young man this week who just lost his job. What do you say to him? I'll pray. It'll be fine. No. What you say is, let's pray. It will be fine. God's going to take care of this. I I believe this to be true. God said in Psalm 50 verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. So who better to ask? How about the Creator? Who said in Malachi 3.10, with some audacity I might add, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Tithe? I just lost my job and you're telling me to tithe? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And I'll tell you this, nothing tastes better than the provision of the Lord. Now, I can't prove this in the story, but I bet the flour and the oil tasted better than it had ever tasted as they began to make bread. And dip it into that olive oil. Oh, I love to do that. Every day, sweeter, better. I bet it was the best oil on the planet. Prayer yields provision. And if you're struggling with that, then just put your trust in God. Go back, I've said many times, read Matthew chapter 6. Listen to Jesus. He says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. Now there are two possibilities with that. He's a liar and it's not going to happen. Or he is the son of God and he's made a promise. And he will keep it. Well, verse 17 tells us, as Elijah's story continues, Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And so she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. We don't even know what her iniquity was. Maybe that's the reason there was no father. You know? And now the one son that she had by a man who wasn't her husband has died. 
Which reminds her that the whole thing, the way she did about it, was out of order anyway. And, and now, now he's dead and she's suffering this. And, and this man of God has come to her. And what a mess this is. What happens if you pray and the brook runs dry and the sun dies? What happens if you put your trust in God? What, what if I pray in faith, as Yaakov said, and he doesn't restore the one who is sick? And raise him up. What if then? What if God doesn't come through? See, that's what the devil whispers quietly. What if it's not true? What if he's just not there for you? I remind you what Paul told Timothy. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He he is either a faithful God or he is no God at all. He is either trustworthy in the word that he says or don't trust him at all. Prayer brings provision. Yeah, the brook is going to run dry. And yeah, the sun is going to die. But sometimes, miraculous things like like being fed by ravens, like flour and oil just appearing every day as you need it, these wonderful miraculous things will happen and be closely followed by tragedy. So the faith that was starting to get built gets shattered by the things that happen in our lives. The devil is always trying to destabilize faith. To to disappoint, to discourage any faith that we have. Why does God allow these things to happen? Because He's moving deliberately. He wants to bring a harvest of faith. And so yeah, oftentimes we'll have great mountaintop experiences and everything seems to be going well and the brook dries up. Or the sun dies. Remember what Yaakov said. Chapter 1, verse 2, back in the book of Yaakov, Considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You therefore, he said, chapter 5, verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Or chapter 5, verse 15, he says, the prayer offered in faith will restore, sozo, save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, a gyro. He will resurrect him, either again, out of bed or from the dead. It really doesn't matter. Either way, God's going to save and raise. If it's today or if it's tomorrow, does it really make a difference? He's going to do it. He promised He would. So don't panic when the provision seems to be running low or when it seems the life is leaving. Don't panic. Just pray. Verse 19. Watch this. He said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her bosom. So clearly he was young enough, at least for Mama, to be holding. I doubt he was 37 at the time. He took him from her and carried him to the upper room where he was living, that is where Elijah was living, and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Now this is, this is amazing to me. Here's something to learn. It's not even one of my points. I just saw this as I was reading it. Look at how real Elijah is with God. He's just straight. He doesn't go in there with some holy religious piety. He, he just says, Lord, how can you let this happen? The son is dead. And then verse 21. 
He stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. (laughs) I love this. And Elijah said, see, your son's alive. It's all good. And then the woman said to Elijah, and notice the change in her heart, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. He's no longer the Lord your God. He is now to this woman the Lord. What does this teach us? It teaches us that prayer is persistent. Persistent, persistent. Notice Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times. Three is the number of resurrection. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Every time you see, just about every time you see the number three applied in Scripture, it has to do with someone brought to life or some kind of a resurrection experience. And so Elijah stretches himself out on the boy three times. But that tells us that this took time. He didn't just stretch himself out, pray the prayer, and boom, it was all done. He stretches out, he prays, he looks down. Nothing. So he does it again. Nothing. What if he had stopped after the second time? What if he just quit praying? Well, I tried twice. You know, what if he had prayed once, didn't get the answer he was looking for, and quit, gave up? It's not until the third time now that finally, as he prayed, stretched out again upon the child, that life comes rushing back in. Prayer is persistent. Stretch out in prayer. Stretch yourself out in prayer. Pray persistently. And by the way, I think old camel knees would agree with that. Pray consistently and persistently. What did Jesus say? The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Luke chapter 11. And He gave them an example of prayer, a little miniature Lord's Prayer there in Luke chapter 11. Pray this. And then He goes on to give a parable. He says, suppose one of you has a friend and goes into him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside He answers and says, do not bother me. The door's already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up, get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not give up, get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he'll get up and give him as much as he needs. And then Jesus goes on to famously say, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Why? Why this concept? And we see this over and over in Scripture. Persist in prayer. Don't just pray and give up. Persist in prayer. What is God doing there? Trying to build endurance? Partially. But I think it's much deeper than that. Why would God ask us to persist in prayer? Because the more we pray, the more we are with Him. And He just wants to be with us. Remember what we said Sunday? Prayer is relationship. And as I persist in prayer, I'm in the presence of God. And as I'm in the presence of God, this is good. 
from God's perspective, this is just good. I, you're with me. And we're talking. Don't you love talking? And then we go off somewhere else. Well, I tried praying to God. And He's like, try again. Try again. Persistence in prayer. The more we stretch out, the more life and breath and intimacy we have with, with our Father. And I'm absolutely convinced that's why God wants us to pray so much. Because when we pray, we're with Him. And we're thinking about Him and we're talking to Him. Well, chapter 18 continues the story. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Skip down to verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. In other words, it's your problem, Ahab. You bailed on God. You've gone after other gods. But Ahab calls him, you troubler of Israel. Man, I would wear that as a badge of honor coming from Ahab. Troubler, right. Thank you. Listen. Number five, I think, in our, in our list here. Prayer is a provocation. Prayer is a provocation. It provokes. It's provocative. It affects other people. Sometimes in a very negative way. All Elijah had done to this point was pray. He just prayed and the rain stopped. And Ahab calls him, you troubler of Israel. Now, Spiros Zodiades said Elijah must have been quite active before the events of chapter 17. Ahab called him the troubler of Israel. And they had looked everywhere for him. The reputation which he had already acquired seemed to have had an effect on Ahab, especially causing him to take the prophecy of the drought seriously. So Zodiades says... The problem of Elijah the troubler of Israel goes way back. He's been causing trouble. He's just been a troublemaker all along for Ahab. I submit to you that that's not what's going on. I mean, honestly, what does it take to make you take a drought seriously? How about no rain? I mean, after three years of no rain because Elijah prayed, I could see him being called the troubler of Israel. Here's the point, and it's one of the rare times that I disagree with Spiro Zodiades. <laughs> but there is nothing in the Scriptures that indicates Elijah had done anything provocative but pray. That's all he did. How threatening was that? He just prayed. Now the drought came as a result of that prayer. But that's all this man had done. Prayer is a provocation. Prayer provokes. Look at verse 19. Now then, Ahab said, or, or Elijah said, Send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, by the way, Jezebel was a Jewess. No, she wasn't. She was a Zidonian. She was from Sidon, like the widow of Zarephath. She was a foreigner who married into Israel, who married Ahab and brought with her the Zidonians, Baal and Asherah worship and was promoting it throughout the land. 
You could say she was bailing out Israel. (laughs) Sorry. Verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together there at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people did not answer him a word. That is so frustrating. (laughs) You're a prophet and you're saying, Make up your mind. Choose a side. Stop hesitating. The word hesitate there is an interesting word in the Hebrew. The noun form of the word is actually a Jewish celebration. Passover. Pesach. To pass over. But the verb form means to jump back and forth. And that's what the people were doing. Oh, today we're going to worship Baal. Today we're going to worship Yahweh. Today we're going to worship Asherah. Today we're going to worship Yahweh. And they're back and forth. And Elijah calls them on that. And he is provoking. And his prayer and now his his entire behavior is provocative. He's trying to stir the people up to make a choice. Like Jesus talking to Laodicea. Man, I wish that you were hot or cold. Pick one. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So Elijah continues. The people did not say a word. They're convicted, but they're not speaking. And Elijah said, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Remember, there's 400 from Asherah too. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood but put no fire under it and I'll prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people said, that is a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourself, prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal, from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leapt about the altar which they had made. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he's God. Either he's occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and just needs to be awakened. By the way, gone aside is euphemistic for in the restroom. Perhaps your God's on the potty. He's just indisposed and you need to need to get his attention or wake him up. So they cried, verse 28, with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice and no one answered and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And so with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. And then he arranged the wood, and he cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood, And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. Water flowed around the altar and also filled the trench with water. 
At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, that is Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. I've always thought this was such a bloody story. First of all, these, I mean, the prophets of Baal were already bleeding out, right? They'd already lashed themselves and cut themselves. And he slew every single one of the 450 prophets of Baal. Why just the 450 prophets of Baal? Why didn't he slay the 400 prophets of Asherah? Now, I can't prove this either, but I will submit to you that it was because he had no legal jurisdiction. What do you mean? In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, and in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 18, and you can look this up, Hebrew law, the law of Moses, called for the execution of idolaters among the people of Israel. I submit that the 450 prophets of Baal were Jewish. These were Jewish false teachers. These were people of Israel who had now become prophets of Baal and therefore the law applied to them and all 450 were slain that day as the 450 prophets of Asherah probably hightailed it back up to Sidon where they lived. They were not Jews. Whatever the case, prayer is a provocation. It provokes the enemy. Some people will hate you for it will try to shut it down. They already have tried so hard in so many different avenues in our country. Get it out of the schools. Get it out of public meetings. Shut down prayer. Why? Because it provokes people. See, the spiritual truth to this is as you're praying to the only one true God, all of the spirits who are opposed to God don't want that to happen. And those who reject faith in Jesus Christ don't want to hear it. They'd rather hear from Native American gods. They'd rather pray to pagan deities, which we're seeing massively on the rise. I I know, and I won't say who, but I know this last week there was a council meeting in Olympia, and the prayers were all Native American prayers to pagan gods. This is how the council meeting in a major capital in this state was opened this week. It's remarkable to me. But don't pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because prayer is a provocation. It provokes the enemy. It provokes the people of God who are around you to stop hesitating between two opinions. So pray and provoke in the name of Jesus. Because Yahweh is God. We'll keep going. Verse 41. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound 
of the roar of a heavy shower. Three and a half years has gone by. Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he crouched down to the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. So he went up and he looked and he said, there's nothing. And he said, go back seven times. Talk about persistent prayer. He prays, he labors, he says, go look. Goes and looks, comes back, I don't see anything. Okay, pray some more, go look. He goes and looks, comes back, I don't see anything. It came about at the seventh time, verse 44, that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, that is the valley at the, at the base of Mount Carmel, about 14 miles down the mountain. And then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins, hiked up his skirt, and he outran Ahab to Jezreel. He just bolts down the mountain, 14 miles outruns a chariot. Cool. I like Elijah. But at this point in Elijah's ministry, he, like James Taylor, could say, Oh, I have seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen raven food and the prophets of Baal slain. That's not in the James Taylor song. But he's crouched down in this weird position. Verse 42. And this is where the idea, if you've heard of it, of birthing prayer comes from. There are whole schools on teaching birthing prayer and what birthing prayer looks like and how to, how to get into the position of birthing prayer. And I confess to you, as a pastor here at the bridge, that I don't normally get into this position to pray. <laughs> feel a little weird about it. But it is a Middle Eastern birthing position that we find Elijah in at this time. It's a custom of childbearing. It's the way that they did it. Crouched down, head between the knees. And this is the position that Elijah is in. Number six in our notes on prayer. Prayer is pregnant with promise. Prayer is pregnant with promise. Listen, Elijah wasn't birthing anything that wasn't already on the heavenly schedule. God had already told him. He had already had the conversation with the Lord. He had already prayed that it would be a drought for three and a half years. Well, now the three and a half years is up. The promise is coming to fruition. And what Elijah is praying is for something God has already intended to do. Guess what? That's prayer. Do you realize that most of our prayers do not originate with us? That most of our prayers we have heard in our spirit from the Lord and we're just returning to Him? That most of our prayers we are simply praying in the will of God if we are praying the will of God? Well, it started with Him. He gave me the faith to pray. He gives me the words to pray. And I just return it to Him. F.B. Meyer says, as God's ambassador, Elijah had pleaded with man. Now, as man's intercessor, he pleads with God. The men who stand straightest in the presence of sin bow lowest. In the presence of God. And you might remember Jesus said of Caesarea Philippi, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. When we're walking in the will of God, we're not doing anything that He hasn't already intended or purposed to do. 
And that's this prayer of Elijah. Prayer simply unleashes the promises that are pregnant, that are ready to be birthed. They're ready to be delivered. This is how God functions. The promises are there. Here we go. I'm already, all I'm waiting on is you to get into position and pray. Just trust me. So Elijah prays with the expectancy of the coming promise of the rain. And ask yourself, do you pray that way? Do I pray that way? Do we pray expectantly or hesitantly? Oh Lord, you know, I mean, it's the George Bailey scene. I know I refer to him a lot, but it's the George Bailey scene in his wonderful life. Sitting at the bar saying, oh Lord, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there, I sure could use some help. Do we pray like that? Or do we pray expectantly, Lord, I know you already have this situation under control. I know you've already got the answer that I'm searching for. Will you open my eyes to see it? Open my ears to hear it? Open my faith to believe it? What you already have prepared for your people? Expectant prayer. Isaiah 65.23, God says, They will not labor in vain or bear for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord, their descendants with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I'll hear. And Jesus said in Matthew 11, or Mark 11, sorry, verse 22, He said, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whatever whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he said is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Well, how can I believe it's going to happen? Because I trust God to follow through on His Word. Because He's faithful. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. And I remind you again, it is not a faith that you can muster, it is a mustard seed faith. I keep repeating that because we got to break this. I'm trying to actually, I think, break some of the crust off of my own brain that I've got to muster enough faith to make this happen rather than trust the one who makes it happen. Just that much faith. Man, even if all we can see as we're praying in the immediate, you're praying for rain and all you see is a cloud the size of a man's hand way out there on the horizon, God's starting to do something. It's going to rain. God's going to bring the rain. Verse 1 of chapter 19. We're going to go just a little further. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. By the way, why did, why did Elijah race down to try and beat Ahab down to Jezreel? I think perhaps because he was trying to get down there to Jezebel before Ahab did. Maybe. Try and let her know, look, this is what's going on. Don't freak out. He knew something about this woman. Well, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. That is the 450 prophets of Baal that were slain. That's going to be you all over. Verse 3. And he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah and he left his servant there. Guess what? Elijah, the mighty man of God, stopped praying. And what happens when he's not praying? He's running. 
As Forrest Gump said, I was running. He, now he's just running. That's all he's doing. You stop praying and fear comes. Rather than going to the Lord, he's racing for his life. Amazing. He has just killed 450 prophets of Baal. He stood before all Israel gathered there on Mount Carmel. He saw fire come down from heaven. Amazing atmospheric power. What an incredible time. But one threat from one woman and he's off running like a frightened rabbit. You know what? Yaakov tells us Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Look at verse 4. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and sat down under a juniper tree. He requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough! Ever said that? It's enough. I have had it, Lord. I can't do this anymore. I can't go to that church. I can't be around those people. I can't do your will. It's too hard. What you're asking of me is too much. That's what Elijah's saying. It's enough. It's enough now, O Lord. Take my life. For I am not better than my father's. And he lay down and slept. Why? Because he's depressed. Slept under the juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Rise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake. Angel food cake. (laughs) Baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And note this, we find out who the angel was. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. I am immediately reminded that Jesus knew how to bake bread, didn't He? On the shore of the Galilee, John chapter 21, verse 12, He says to the boys, come have breakfast, and they get over there, and there's already fresh baked bread and fish frying. Jesus knows how to prepare a meal. Wait, you're saying this is Jesus? Well, it's the angel of the Lord. The Malach Yahweh. And I am convinced and I will confess my my being wrong if Jesus Himself tells me otherwise. But as I read it throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, every single time we see the Malach Yahweh, the messenger or angel of the Lord, it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Because He speaks the words of God in the position of God. He receives worship like God, the Malach Yahweh. And so here is Jesus talking to Elijah. Isn't it marvelous? 900 years ago by and Elijah's going to be talking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. A relationship that was already begun way back here where Jesus prepared some breakfast for Elijah. He came again and he said, Arise, eat, the journey is too great for you. So he arose and he ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, which, my friends, is in Midian over 200 miles from where he was in Hebron travels all the way down to the Mount of God. This is the Mount where the law was given. The Mount that the Israelites all gathered around. The Mount that that Moses went up. And I wonder what, what the thinking was all the way down from Beersheba to Mount Horeb. Walking and perhaps wallowing. Depressed and despairing. Because remember, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. 
after all of this, put, put this together, what we've looked at just tonight. Prayer for a famine. Bread and meat from ravens. Flour and oil for months on end. A widow's son raised. An altar brazed. False prophets slayed. Torrential rains. Seven supernatural events in three and a half years. Seven remarkable events. We're told there are seven. There may have been more, but seven. What is this? A complete picture of a God who takes care of you, who answers every single prayer. And what happens? He came there to a cave, verse 9, lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I'm all alone in this, Lord. Biggest lie the enemy ever told you. You're alone. No one else understands. No one else is dealing with what you're dealing with. You alone are shouldering the weight of the world. No one else has ever experienced that. It's the height of self-pity, and it's the greatest lie of the enemy. You are alone. And the great and mighty Elijah felt this way. I'm all alone in this. What a personal mess. (laughs) So God said, verse 11, Go forth, stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. Some translations like to say the still, small voice. It's just a a stillness, a calm, a little breeze. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, went outside and stood at the entrance of the cave. Man, what a picture of a child who thinks he's now in trouble. If you have kids, I mean, my kids have done this, you know. All right, your mom and I need to talk to you. And up the stairs they come with the hoodie on. And this is Elijah. He's not looking up. He's wrapped. What? I'm all alone. Behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He's asked the question now the second time. What are you doing here? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. Yet same song, second verse. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. He's really rehearsed this on the 200 mile trek down to Horeb. And the Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hatziel, the king over Aram. And Yehu, the the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall come about, the one who escapes the sword of Hatziel, Yehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Yehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet will I leave, or I will leave, 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Listen, this is beautiful what God's doing. Three and a half years, and Elijah's burned out. He is just 
fried. He poured out all that he had for the Lord and in return he feels all alone and forsaken. And the people, no one's listening to this prophetic message. No one's paying attention to the preaching. No one's showing up to his Wednesday night service. And he's all alone. And he feels miserable. And and God's answer is so tender. He just says, look, i got a few more things I need you to do. And then you're done. And then we're going to put Elisha in your place. I'm not, I'm not going to ask any more of you. Now, Elijah's going to do one more fantastic thing as he calls down fire from heaven yet again. And then he's going to hop on a fiery chariot and, and head right back up to heaven. And God's going to call on Uber. Actually, actually it wouldn't be Uber. It would be Lyft. <laughs> to come take him away. But in all this, here we come to the end of this, this story of Elijah. Who Yaakov says, here's the picture for you. Now if Yaakov says that, there's, there's stuff here. And we've already gone through several of these. The seventh one in the list here is prayer. It's personal. It's personal. It's you and God. And in your aloneness and in your brokenness and in the mess that you think your life has become, God's right there going, what's going on here? Why does he say, what are you doing here, Elijah? He knows why Elijah's there. What's he doing? He's engaging Elijah in conversation. He's inviting Elijah to share what's on his heart. Prayer is personal. The Lord says, Psalm 91 verse 14, Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high. Because he has known my name. He will call upon me. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Now, here's what I want you to see. Last thing. In the life of Elijah, in the prayers of Elijah, all the different aspects of praying, the thing that stands out, I believe, more than anything else is the further in his ministry he went, the more he had to pray. And you see this very practically. At the very beginning, chapter 17, verse 1, he prays. One time, it stops the rain. And then, chapter 17, verse 21, he has to pray three times to raise the dead boy. And then, chapter 18, verse 43, he has to pray seven times to start the rain. It's a crescendo of prayer in the ministry of Elijah. And at the very end of it here, in chapter 19, guess what? The few prayers that turn into the many prayers that turn into the the bunch of prayers now become an entire conversation he's having with the Lord. Which was God's intention from the very start. That one prayer would become many would become a conversation. And when we talk about prayer and prayer is relationship, that's what we're talking about. That's what I am absolutely convinced more and more in my own life and in the life of the church. This is what God is looking for for people in the last days to learn to pray like Elijah in the former days. Not once, not three times, not seven times, but as a conversation that is ongoing. It takes an entire chapter of of conversing and, and being in the presence of the Lord. Because that's prayer. Yaakov said... Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the earth poured rain, and the earth, the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. 
And as the caveat of all that, what he says is the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. So we have just seen what a righteous man looks like. He looks an awful lot like you and like me. It's how Elijah prayed in the former days. It's how I believe we're to pray in these last days. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for the example of Elijah. We thank You that Yaakov sought to bring him to our attention and to think about not the fantastic exploits of this man, but Father, Your faithfulness through it all. What a beautiful reminder, Lord. Father, You have done mighty things through people in this room. You have done astounding things that to us, sometimes we don't even recognize. And yet, through all of this, Father, I hear You. We hear You saying, come away with Me. Just come away and rest yourselves. Again and again, Lord, You call us to be with You in the Scriptures. May we learn this, Father. Oh, Lord Jesus, teach us to walk with You and to converse with You and to be with You. And change us as we are. Help us as we pray to to profess the name of the Lord Jesus. And may our prayers become so personal. Really, Lord, we don't even call them prayers anymore because we're just talking to our Father. And our Lord Jesus, through Your Spirit. Thank You, Lord. We love You. In Jesus' name. Amen.